The following talk was given by Jeffrey Sugar Arnold Roshi during a Fusatsu ceremony at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugen Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everyone. At a time like this, deep in the mountains, in the 13th century, Ehe Dogen spoke these words at the threshold of a new year. As the heavenly sky is vacant and clear, oneness attains oneness and is undefiled. The earth is covered with nourishing moisture, penetrating a thousand and soaking ten thousand. How is it right at this time? And after a pause, Dogen said, news of spring spreads harmony and the entire world is fragrant. The deity of spring sits immovable in the cloud monk's hall. On each branch, flowers bloom with coral colors. The blossoms of the world open and this is a heavenly realm. Dogen is speaking from uh, his vision, his experience of the enlightened mind and the enlightened world. Harmony spreads naturally throughout the world. And within each and everything, the entire world is fragrant, arising from uncreated emptiness, clear, undefiled, a heavenly realm, he says. And this is our basic nature. It can be awakened. We have been here all week in Rahatsu doing just that. And we deepen our faith in this reality. And because it can seem distant, remote, inaccessible, because it is speaking of a realm that is not an ordinary realm, and yet is never apart from that, we have to hear it again and again and again. And so for 25 centuries, that song has been sung to deepen our faith so that we can practice in accord with it, to verify this enlightened mind that we each possess, and then to live it. We can only do this within ourselves. We can only do this with each other. And these two are not in conflict. The Sangha is a, a living Dharma body. We do Fusatsu, renewal of vows, in the, in the tradition of the Buddha gathering the Sangha, going through the, the Vinaya, the, the monastic vows, taking responsibility for transgressions, returning to a state of wholeness. We do this because the Sangha is a living thing, a living Dharma body, and so it has to be taken care of. The Sangha is a mudra of self-fulfilling, self-illuminating, self-realizing, 
selflessness. And it's rich with differences, with it's abundant, it's replete with fecundity. It's like spring, where it's busting out all over the place. And without that, there can be no Sangha. So we, the Buddha said that to practice the precepts, to live in the precepts, is necessary for a Sangha to be a Sangha. It's not just a gathering of people doing meditation. It's living the Dharma together. And to do that within that fecundity, both of our own body and mind, our own lives, all we bring to that, the bodies and minds of others, and that it should be like a field of flowers with a hundred thousand different flowers, each one. Some appear the same, but each one is unique. But they also appear differently, and so we commit and actively and ongoingly practice freeing ourselves and others of bias and oppression that we've inherited, that we have within us and between us, so that we can manifest that diverse field of flowers without pain and suffering. And so in bringing this Drahatsu to a close on this New Year's Eve at the threshold of a new year, which is a construction in a way, but it has something to do with the sun and the earth. It's not purely construction. And I don't know, but when I go out on New Year's Eve and just stand outside, it feels like New Year's Eve. Now, am I just completely making that up? Or is there something in the air? <laughs> we do carry the karma of our individual and collaborative lives. We do. We see greed and anger and delusion, pride, jealousy, fear, intolerance in every direction. We see the tired, Machines of war and violence still being brought forth. But that's not all we see. I've been reading a, a book by Wendell Berry, and in that he talks about <clears throat> kindness. But he finds his way into it by saying that to condemn the condemnation by category, he says, one category of people against another is the lowest form of hatred for it's cold-hearted and abstract, he says, lacks even the heat and courage of a personal hatred. Categorical hatred is the hatred of the mob, which makes cowards brave, false bravery, of course. And there's nothing more fearful than a religious mob overflowing with righteousness. He's Christian, and so he invokes the crucifixion. He says, this sort of violence can happen only after we have made a categorical refusal of kindness to heretics, foreigners, enemies, anyone, any group that we see different from ourselves. 
a categorical refusal of kindness, an action, a choice, to refuse that quality, that virtue which we all possess, that virtue that we all rely upon. But the greed, anger, delusion is not all we see. We see generosity and compassion. We do see loving kindness. We see clarity, sympathetic joy. We see movements of change, things being questioned, challenged, that historically, for the most part, were just everyday matters. We ourselves are just ordinary people, individuals, living brief lives. I was feeling the, the power, the strength, the beauty of the voice, our voice chanting a few moments ago feeling the depth and breadth of this sangha, and yet we're just a small, brief collection of bodhisattvas trying to do something fine with our lives in this world. But we have influence. That's the thing. We have the ability, in fact, it is not possible to not affect the world. We are all affecting the world. In small ways, in large ways, you can't opt out of that. In the Prajnaparamita Sutra, the Buddha is asked the question, how should a beginning bodhisattva practice wisdom? How should they stand? How should they train themselves? And the Buddha said, such a bodhisattva should tend, love, and honor the good friends. How do we train? And so here's this, the Buddha speaking from his deep, deep enlightenment, seeing into the nature of all things, lives, past, present, and future, the interconnectedness, cause and effect, dependent origination. And how does he answer this question? How do we begin in the path? We tend love and honor good friends. Tend is to care for, to care of. It's a shortened version of to attend, to attend to, to be an attendant to, to be an attendant to each other. When I was a Jisha in my very early years, to Roshi in many ways, not a very good one, looking back. I, at one point, I realized, I began, to dis, I began to realize, oh, wait a minute, this is not just learning how to tend to my teacher. This is about learning how to tend, to be an attendant in this world. To love, to bring forth compassion, selfless compassion. The desire to alleviate harm, to bring forth all that is good, and to honor to have great respect for each other in all things because they are deserving. And an early meaning of honor is to fulfill an obligation. We sometimes think of obligations as burdensome things. But for the bodhisattva, an obligation is what ties us together. 
It's how we can serve. It's how we can fulfill our vows is by tending, honoring our obligations to each other, which I believe, too, we cannot opt out of. We are born into it. Wendell says, kindness is not a word much at home in current political and religious speech, but it is a rich word and a necessary one. There is good reason to think that we cannot live without it. Such a simple statement. There is good reason to think we cannot live without it. Kind is obviously related to kin, but also to race, as in the human race, and to nature. In the Middle Ages, kind and nature were synonymous, so he says we could rephrase those words of the Declaration of Independence, that all beings, all people are created kin of a kind, of the same human race of nature itself. Kindness, it seems so simple. But why is it so often absent? And so on this night, a night of reflection, a night of standing in a threshold. And Buddhism teaches that because all things arise within mind, and in that sense all things have an illusory nature, nothing exists by itself, everything is kin, that if we're going to dream, then let's dream ourselves awake. If we're going to dream, then let's dream a vow of kindness. But to live that dream is the thing. It's not enough just to have a dream. We have to live it. And so let's reflect for a moment on our good fortune. Here we are. The world is vast and wide. Can you see how it is that you have come to turn towards the Buddha Dharma in a world of virtually endless possibilities? What were the causing conditions for each of us that caused us to turn towards this Buddha Dharma and experience some kind of contact, resonance, affinity, communication, attraction, that now we sit on this seat of enlightenment, this diamond seat in this endo on this auspicious evening together. We can take so much of this for granted. How did you get here? Well, you registered. <laughs> you got yourself here. Yes, and we live in a world of kin where we are akin to each other, to all things. In the South, that's often, particularly in old, old ways of meeting someone. Who are your kin? Who are your people? In other words, who are you? Where do you come from? How did you get here? Not on your own. Who do you have obligation to? To whom do you owe your debts? So many ways to live a life, <clears throat> to be in this world. So many ways to give. 
in encountering this wisdom tradition. And think about that. This path, this dharma, has no purpose, no concern for itself. It does not want to accrue anything. It doesn't want to accumulate. It doesn't want a monastery. It doesn't want to be revered or honored. Bodhidharma said the reason the Buddha taught such things is because we need that. We need that. To establish our proper relationship, to see, recognize what are our fortunate obligations. So in this wisdom tradition, this noble path, if we're going to reflect, let's also reflect on the power of a path. What does that mean? It means there's a way. It means wherever we are, whatever we're facing, no matter how difficult, intractable, impenetrable it may seem, there is a path, the Buddha said. And he spent his whole life laying it out. And it's our, not just our job, it's our opportunity, it's our gift to find out what is that path here, now, in that moment in which there seems no way forward, that we can take refuge, that you are never alone. You are never without Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And that we are bound together so that as I talked about earlier, the Buddha said to take all of this and put it onto the path and then to give it up to others, for others. To open the heart, to no longer be afraid or to be learning how not to be afraid of the strong forces that move within us, desires, emotions, memories, fears. to be an alchemist, to learn how to transform those, to see their potential, to free us, to discover a peace that no one can give to you. You can't even give it to yourself. That's how close it is. And you can never lose it, no matter how hard you try to convince yourself. <laughs> this path is not a exist apart from you or I or anything. And it doesn't exist at all. It's not a thing. You can't lock it up. You can't lock it out. It does not exist in any way that has been or can ever be known or described. But I bow to all of our ancestors who spent their whole lives trying for us, so that we could encounter the Dharma. We could experience that strange affinity, sometimes without knowing what's going on. I see myself moving in this direction. I see myself, but who is that person doing that thing? I don't do that. That's not me. <laughs> We can only do it alone. We can only do it with each other. So what do we do with our solitude? 
What do we do with our community? The Buddha said, tend it, love it, honor it. And he said, these good friends are those who will guide you, instruct you, admonish you in perfect wisdom, expound its meaning. And they will expound it just like this. Come here. They will say in a myriad ways, make endeavors in the six perfections, the paramitas. Whatever you may have achieved by way of giving a gift or guarding your morality or perfecting yourself in patience or exertion of vigor or entering into your meditation or mastering wisdom, turn all of that over into enlightenment. Give all of that over to fulfilling your obligations joyfully. In another passage, he says, those friends are the paramitas themselves. Not just two-legged friends, but the teachings, the dharma. Whatever you may have achieved, turn it over. Bring it forth and dedicate all the good for the well-being of others. How do we do this? When do we do this? Do it in your morning liturgy. A simple dedication in front of your altar. If you don't have an altar, just do it wherever you are. Bring it into your mind. Make a pledge, an intention, a wish for this day. Just for this day. Because tomorrow you'll do it again. And let it include your kin. All of them particularly the ones that you might normally keep outside the door or those that might keep you outside the door. Do it in the vows that you make tonight after Fasatsu will sit into the New Year. Daikaijo will lift the roof off and then we'll do a service, a New Year's service. And everyone will be invited to come and offer incense and make a vow and in that moment, hold that in your mind. A vow is a real thing. It's a serious thing, actually, if it means something to you. It's an alignment. It's a dedication, a commitment. So if we're going to do it, we should do it in a way that it matters, that means something. So fulfill our obligations in that vow. Do it by giving, the Buddha said. In every opportunity, trust the power of giving. There's always something we can give. In our greediness and stinginess, the heart constricts. You can actually feel it. The body constricts. You can feel it. And in giving, it releases. We can feel that. In that constriction, the world seems small and mean. And so we have to let go our hold. We can fulfill our vows in our practice of patience. And patience is a subtle form of aggression. Sometimes it's not that subtle, trying to control. Patience is deep and broad. It's calm and stable. It's trusting. It's essential. We do this in our practice of vigor, this great spirit and enthusiasm of the bodhisattva that makes us alive, right? It's what we see in 
in wild things is their aliveness, and it draws us to them, doesn't it? It inspires us. It delights us. Sometimes it frightens us. We have that. Joyful effort, vigor. And this practice, by golly, requires it. (laughs) It's just not for slackers. (laughs) Because that's what life requires. Life is inviting us in. Not to drift through. And it calls us out of our apathy, our complacency, our fear. There is a life energy, a force. We call it key. We've all week, we've been stewing in it, sitting in it, bringing it forth, sometimes feeling absent of it, but it's always there. If you've ever been present at the moment of someone's passing, you feel that transition. We do it with our zazen, the essential art, Dogen called it. It's not meditation, Dogen said. It's simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease, the practice realization of a totally culminated enlightenment. It's the koan realized. Traps and snares can never reach it. It cannot be bound, even in the moment that we feel bound. It's not bound. If you grasp the point, you're like a dragon gaining the water, a tiger taking to the mountains. Know that the true Dharma appears of itself so that from the start, dullness and distraction are cast aside. Meditation, paramita. And while we're reflecting, let's reflect on this gift that we've received in, in Zazen, receiving Zazen. Let's consider this essential art, this simple practice that I hope we will each spend our lifetime discovering and discovering again and again and understand why Zhao Zhou said it's not meditation, it's alive and why Dogen says it's an essential art. It's not a science. It's not a knowledge. It's not something anyone can give to you. We give instruction and then basically, see you later, baby. (laughs) Now it's yours. And prajna, to discover our Buddha wisdom, two arrows meeting in midair, all apparent opposition, all sources of conflict, we realize have always been originally at peace in this primordial ocean of samadhi. And so the Buddha said, the perfection of wisdom, regard this as your good friend, your Buddha mind. All of the paramitas, in fact, are the good friends of a bodhisattva, the Buddha said. They are your teacher, your path, your light, your torch, your illumination, your shelter, your refuge. They're your place of rest, a final relief, your island, your mother, your father. They lead you to cognition, to understanding, to enlightenment. 
for it is in these six perfections that the perfection of wisdom is accomplished. They are your kin, your family, your good friends, your community, these teachings, these paramitas, which is another way of saying they are not things on a page, they're not inanimate things. They're not words that contain meaning. They're alive. They're living things. And we give them life over and over and over again. What kind of magic is that? And so to think of these teachings, these paramitas, the precepts, which are, of course, included in the paramitas, as good friends. What is a good friend? A good friend is somebody who knows you deeply. They often know things about ourselves we ourselves haven't yet seen. The Dharma is just like that. A good friend trusts you, even when you waver, even when you're cranky, even when you're petulant. They don't abandon you. They can be relied upon. You can rely upon them, lean on them. A good friend is happy when you're happy. And they will face you. And sometimes they will present you with the truth. Even when we don't want to or struggle to hear it. A good friend is the medicine that we need. And so to reflect on the good friends. And as we see, it's, it's a growing crowd getting larger, these good friends. So we have to make room. But that's not a problem, because there is room enough in this vast body. And so to reflect on on this Dharma that has no purpose other than to be your teacher, to be my teacher, to be our light, our final relief, our mother, our father, our refuge, no other reason to lead us along the way. And so as we enter into this new year, this heavenly sky, which is vacant and clear, where all that is undivided is undivided. The earth is covered with nourishing moisture, and it penetrates the thousands a thousand and soaking ten thousand. And then he asks the question, so how is it now, right now? And that question, which is asked over and over, what does it do? It brings you right up to this place, right up to this time. It brings us up to here. Because that's the place we've been looking for. So let us make our vows worthy of the energy that we're going to commit to them. Let them be clear, not vague, but broad, encompassing, equal to our aspiration, useful. A vow is a useful thing. It's to be used to help us to face with courage the demands of living in samsara. Samsara is a demanding situation. 
Wendell Berry says, the wealth of this kindness that we cannot do without is not exhausted by kindnesses to humans. It's far more encompassing. From some Christians as far back as the 12th century, certainly from farther back in so-called primitive cultures, and from some ecologists of our own time and from many others, I would say, we have the idea of a great kindness that includes and binds together all beings, the living and the non-living, the plants and animals, the water, the air, the stones, the animate and the inanimate, the mountains and rivers. Barry says, all ultimately are of a kind, belonging together, interdependently in this world. Much happiness, much joy can come to us from our membership in a kindness so comprehensive and original. He's a humble person, and so when he says much happiness, he means more than we could ever imagine. (laughs) And then he says, it's a shame, as I know from long acquaintance with myself, that to be divided from it, from this kindness, by the auto-erotic pleasure of despising other members. That is a shame. To think of our delusion, particularly our ill will, our hatred, as an auto-erotic pleasure. It's seductive. It's an intoxicant, and it's lethal. It poisons the system. And so this kindness that is all-encompassing, that is deserved by everything, and that when we live in that kindness, we ourselves experience much happiness and joy. Because we can't offer it without having it. When we practice the meditation of the four immeasurables, we ourselves have to fill ourselves with loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. That's how it works. When we bring forth a vow, that vow is now alive in us. And so not being limited by time and space, while we live within a very particular time and space, let us know that we are always in the presence of good friends. Some of them are well aware of it. Many are not. And what's important is that we know. That we know our kin. And that we devote our lives to Kinship. Kindness, such a simple word. Right? Not so easy to bring forth. Wrong. Not so hard. News of spring spreads harmony and the entire world is fragrant. Blossoms of the world open. This is a heavenly realm.
So, as we go into our final moments of this new year, let's hold all of it and bring that forth in our vows and our chanting of the Metasutta. And then we will go downstairs and share some words and food with each other. An ancient tradition of kindness. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.